glasses being tossed in the direction of everybody who was here, including us. They get, get the F out of here. We don't care that you're pressed. Thousands of protesters are marching right now through Manhattan. I do find I'm getting more emotional. A sea of humanity, coast to coast. From the I have so much anxiety about my son. There were protests here over the death of George Floyd. But this was a trauma to everyone. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Debrief podcast. I'm David Ushery, an anchor of the 4 and 11 at News 4 New York. And uh, it's been a week. It's been a week of reflection, marking the one year since Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. Nine and a half minutes of his knee on his neck. And we've been observing both in our newscasts and our digital uh, writings what's changed and what's has, what hasn't, excuse me. So we thought we'd spend this podcast this week digging into what we call the reporter's notebook. And that is to say, our reporters take a lot of notes, and then you'll see the ultimate presentation of their stories on the air. But there's a lot of other things in their notebook that maybe don't make it into the story some of their observations, some of their feelings. And specifically, I wanted to do a deep dive with uh, Black reporters because never perhaps before have we been tested so much overall as journalists with reporting on two overriding things that not only are happening, but also affect us. One of them would be COVID because we have the same fears and anxieties for our families as we were reporting on. And the other one is this reflection of race and policing. And I think all of the reporters that you're going to hear from today spend years covering all aspects of the story. But it's fair to say that it has resonated in a way unlike any other time in our careers. And, and I'll let them speak to that. And I think there's something to hear about the insight and actually ask them, ask us, how have we changed? What's the toll been like? And so I'm joined happily today by Pat Battle, weekend anchor today in New York, longtime reporter in New Jersey really a force of life, force of nature. Tracy Strahan, battling it out in the morning, the ever-important morning show, getting it started for the day. He's been in so many scenes and covered so many of these stories. Um, and both Pat and Tracy are parents, by the way. And Miles Miller, spent a lot of time covering a lot of law enforcement, a lot of crime, uh, black men reporting these issues. So often this is hard for us, right? And I said this a couple of weeks ago to, to give our own feelings and thoughts, but I think we're at a point in time where we just need to acknowledge it. And I think it's important for other listeners to hear it. So I just want to kick off the conversation and get out of the way. And, and I guess, Pat, I'll start with you. Um, how have you changed over the last year? How has this affected you? David, uh, it's changed me in, in ways that I really didn't anticipate that it would um, in that I wanted to become that person who was delivering a message uh, in the way that we're trained to do, right? We are trained to be objective and not to insert ourselves into stories. And I, I, it, it took me back to a conversation I had, obviously, many years ago with the late and the great journalist Ed Bradley. Um, and we were we were conversing. I was doing a, a profile on him, uh, and uh, he said, "You know, we are journalists who happen to be black, not necessarily black journalists, 
But when you bring what you are, who you are to any given situation, who, your blackness is always ever present. I remember when I was a, a newspaper reporter and I had to interview the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan in New Jersey by telephone. He didn't think because of my proper English that I was speaking, he didn't think he was talking to a black reporter and he was telling me all kind of N-word jokes. When it came time to meet in person and he saw me come into the room, he left. Wouldn't do the interview. Uh, mortified. And something about that said to me, if I can present myself for the next however long my career is, it's over 30 years now, to a, gra a greater audience in a way that makes them empathize, uh, then I have to take that responsibility very seriously. And, and I do. I should point out that our reporters, uh, a couple of them are out in the field on assignment but taking time out to have this conversation. So, Miles, we often, we often talk, you know, reporters of color, black reporters, talk about this added um, this added weight sometimes in a newsroom. If a story of race comes up, then, you know, it's felt that we have to kind of represent and carry that. Uh, one person called it the burden of race. And it's not that we shy away from it, but it's another added calculation. Uh, and yet we strive, as any reporter, to be seen as objective, to be seen as fair, to be seen as thorough. Um, how does it affect you? You were covering some of the protests. You had to watch that video of George Floyd. It was obviously race was so much a part of this. Uh, talk to me about that experience. I think I'll say from the outset that I stopped watching those videos um, of, of um, incidents with police because um, the idea of continuing to watch the trauma is just is too much. And, it, and you know, luckily for us, um, they haven't been um, in the last within the last year. Uh, uh, incidents much like George Floyd in New York. So I haven't had to do that for work, but it's, it's a, it's really a process to, to sit down and watch those videos. I mean, I watched not one bit of the trial. Uh, and I think, uh, I, I also couldn't, there was also the video a, a, a couple of months ago, um, in Brooklyn, uh, park, uh, in Minneapolis Minnesota. And I couldn't watch that either, but to go back to last summer, you know, I, um, because of the pandemic, um, in, in order to help out another reporter who was who couldn't work nights, I moved to working nights. Uh, and that's when the protests would happen. Um, I was also working weekend nights. And so the first couple of days of protests, it started on a Thursday. Uh, I worked the morning show on a Friday and then Saturday and Sunday. I mean, it was it was uh, it was a wild situation to watch um, things burning, to watch the way the police handled people, um, you know, with such force. Um, the Saturday of protests, I mean, it just was, it was, I, I couldn't believe what I, what I was seeing. And then to be pushed and shoved and knocked onto the ground by cops. Um, and I don't talk about this because I don't think that it, I mean, in, in that respect, I didn't think it added that much to the situation. But then I did on Sunday. Uh, we were in the middle of this crowd. These cops were, took a knee with protesters. Uh, and then all hell broke loose. They they had a bottle of um, uh, a water bottle with, con with poured concrete in it and threw it into the crowd. And we had a security guard with us. And once they threw that into the crowd, I was gone. Listen, I'm gone. Listen, I, I you know, Velma Scott's son needs to be able to go home. And so I was gone and I was nowhere near um, where any of that was happening. We still went live that night. Um, and right before we went live, uh, we got a, a glass bottle nearly hit our heads. And I'm like, what is going on? So it's the it's the the mix of 
that kind of agitation in the protests, the police being heavy handed, and then the the totality of it is being black was just like, I mean, you know, it was it was a lot because you came off the pandemic and covering the pandemic every day. Then you've got um, what happened to George Floyd and, you know, all of my um, white friends in my Instagram or, you know, in the DMs, like, are you OK? And like, honestly, you just want to be OK by yourself, you know. At, at that, you know, uh, my girlfriend's white, and never once did she say, "Are you okay?" And I thought that would thank you because, like, if I want to talk about it, I'll talk about it with you. And you know that that just was it was such a tough time and tough to have these conversations with people who look like me too because we're just tired of talking about it. So that's that. Yeah, that's fair. The weariness, Tracy. Is there an emotional toll on black reporters uh, that maybe people? didn't understand before all this happened and maybe kind of understand now? You know, Miles used a great word, trauma. We think of trauma as this heavy word where things happen to people that will really, you know, they have to be catastrophic. But this was a trauma to everyone. We all saw the same thing. The protesters saw it, the police saw it, and we saw it. And so that trauma is justified because who wants to see that every day? And as journalists, we have to be, I always say, we have to be read in. We have to be informed. We have to know the latest information details. We need to know the latest video. We couldn't do it for self-preservation. You can't do that every day. And I think for me, the moment that was the heaviest was the first time my son saw that video. We're a news household. My husband works in news. I work in news. And for my son, who at the time was eight years old, to see what happened. And my initial thought was cover his eyes, turn it off. But he's a black boy. So we watched it. And, you know, like I said, we're a news household. So if he had questions, we were ready. But we're not going to sugarcoat it either. I'm not going to subject him to watching that every day. But now this boy who is my whole being is part of this trauma that we've all suffered as a nation. And so for us as black journalists to have to go out every single day, it's another weight. And, you know, Miles did the protest. You're getting stuff thrown at you. We're called names, just like the police. The police are yelling at us at the same time. And then at the end of the day, you go home to even more of it. So I think I'm glad you use that word as a trauma, not just as journalists, but as a nation. We suffered a trauma because for nine minutes and 29 seconds, we watched a man die unnecessarily, unnecessarily. We can say that now. And Patty, you talked about, you know, we have to toe the line usually. This is one where you had an opinion because we all saw the same thing. So how do we report that? We stick to the facts, right? <clears throat> we know what the facts are. We know who the players are and all of this. But you can't fault us for having an opinion on this one because it does resonate, especially with Black journalists, so much. Good point, Tracy. Tracy. And, and I'm, go ahead. Go ahead, Pat. And I just, let me just acknowledge... No, no, no. Uh, that Erica Byfield has joined is also one of our reporters who cover like that, also a, a, a new mom. And Erica, you're joining us midstream, and we're telling our listeners they're getting this podcast real deal. We got reporters in the field.
it, it, it may be it may be like life now, you know, a little jagged around the edges, but we're getting through it. So we'll just add you in post production. Good luck to them. But uh, uh, we're talking about this, this perhaps emotional toll. Uh, what the toll has been on black reporters over the last year in covering this and also striving to always hit our objectivity standards, our fair, our balanced representation. So, Pat, go ahead and make your point, and Erica, just jump on in. Well, Erica being a new mom, Tracy having an eight-year-old, David, you have a son who's 14. My son is 23. And I'm as I'm sitting here on the New Jersey Turnpike, I am reminded of a story that captivated uh, this region back in 1998 when four young men in a van coming home from college were fired on by two state police a little bit south of where I am now, about 20 miles south of where I am now, uh, unarmed, innocent, just suspicious, and or driving erratically, something to that effect. I remember. My, my, you remember that story. My, uh, they I were do. indicted, but then they, were, of course, they were, they were not, they were acquitted. Um, you know, my son is 23, and I don't feel any less anxiety when he leaves the house today Amen. than I did a year ago before George Floyd was murdered. I still have the same talk with him. He left the house one night. He goes up, hey, he went to a 24-hour diner with friends. That's why diners are 24 hours, right? So anybody can go at any time. He left at 1.30 in the morning because that's what kids do. I was up until the minute. I, after an hour, mm-hmm. I texted uh, and, and I stayed awake until we got home. And I, I, I just couldn't. I couldn't. I, I'm just, I'm not worried about what happens in the diner. I'm worried what happens on the way to and way home from the diner. Uh, I have so much anxiety about my son. Can't walk the dog with a hoodie on. Um, you know, I'm sorry. I know it's cold. I know it's raining. Please take the hoodie off still. And so, you know, when you ask how I changed, I think I've become even more cautious because what I see and more untrustworthy, unfortunately, because what I've seen in the years since George Floyd passed is more killings. Adam Toledo, Dante Wright, you know, you just, it's it's as though some parts of the country, this resonated with, and and in others, it went unheeded, Uh, even though the whole world was captivated by what happened to George Floyd. When I look at police departments around the country and I see what happened in Virginia to the to the, uh, the to the uh, uh, the um, the army. Oh yes, the army. Yeah, member of the army. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and the way that they treat us, it's like that. You know, it's just why is our skin color still weaponized? That's what. And I say that to my son all the time. I will. I will never. I don't think. Feel completely relaxed when he walks out of the house after ten o'clock at night, and during the day too. But I want to get Erica Bifel in because, again, Erica's on assignment. Erica, I know you, know you and I have talked about this off camera, so just give us your thoughts, reflections personally, a reporter, a black reporter over the last year, uh, and, and the toll and how it's impacted you and what you think listeners should know. Listeners who come to this conversation uh, who may not have considered or figured this about what black reporters might have been up against or considering when they have to cover these stories that are so infused with race. What is it that you think they should know? What do you want to reflect? You know, I think I have to go back to that mom comment because I think my whole world has shifted since I had now two children. I have a boy who's two and a half and a girl who's eight months old. And every single time I look at my son, even he's just two and a half years old, I look at him like Pat just mentioned, going out the door each day. And I think, I hope everyone realizes that he's loved, he's sweet, he's adorable, um, and just love him as a person. And I, I hate the fact that I now think that. Every single time I see him, I, like I study his features, 
I love him that much and I want everyone else to love my son that much. And David, I know I've come to you in the hallways, maybe, I think it was like last year on this time. I was like, how do you do it? Looking to you three, honestly, for guidance, because I'm so worried about my son and now my daughter. Um, hopefully with women, we don't have to be as concerned, but obviously we do know that we do. Um, and those are the thoughts that run through my head as we're working on these stories. I see young people out and about, and I know I can tell you, uh, I, I always made it a point when we were, you know, we call it MOS, just looking for random people on the street to talk to. But I now I'll make it even more of a point to make sure that my, the people that we talk to and we put in our stories are that much more diverse. I want to make sure that people hear from people who look like all of us, um, who have something astute to say. I mean, my photographers are probably very annoyed with me. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. We need one more. We need one more. We're going to stand here. We're going to find someone who can level with everyone else out there, who people will ultimately respect. I mean, it's hard to say here. It's a bad thing. But there are certain other people that you can interview who kind of dismiss their comments. I want people to know that there are people out there who should be respected and voices need to be included in our coverage. That's an important point. You know, I think people ask as journalists and reporters how we address some of these issues. And these conversations have been going on now in newsrooms as a result of this. Uh, how we diversify our representation in the audience in order to address some of this disconnect. In other words, sometimes it's benign neglect. You go out, you're under a deadline, you need the first three sound bites uh, on a story that you can get so you can meet the deadline. And those three sound bites, over time, if they tend to be white people speaking on any number of issues, then you don't get a sense that there are black financial experts or black medical experts who can speak to issues that are not race related. But it's only until you get to that point where the audience sees that there are people of all stripes and all colors who can speak to a number of subjects that we start to address these issues. But it does require Erica, that kind of additional effort. And it requires this newsroom wide effort. And so one of the conversations, frankly, we had is like, all right, how do we diversify our roster of experts so that they appear on these stories. And, and you've seen maybe, so if you talk about a legacy or, or some things that it may be, uh, I said a couple weeks ago, the second tragedy, or the second killing of George Floyd would be a nothing show, right? But I do think that we start to see people more open to the conversations that frankly I think we've had throughout our careers as to why it may take a little extra time, a little extra effort, but these things need to be made a priority. It goes well. It goes from one of those things where we're covering the facts to the sentiment, the feeling of these things, and that's what made this one that much more difficult. From the initial incident to the verdict, am I right? You know, when when that verdict broke, it harkened back to '90s OJ. How's this gonna go? We were as a newsroom prepared for riots. We were, as a newsroom, prepared for violence with security guards given to us. And, you know, then we have our family saying, are you sure you're going to go out into this? We have no choice. That's what we do. Um, and, and quite frankly, I thought we would be going into it, too, to be quite, if I'm being honest. If there had been some sort of acquittal of Derek Chauvin, we were prepared for the worst. Uh, with that not happening, oh, what a difference the day afterwards was I start my day at, you know, I start work at two o'clock in the morning. I've seen looting in Soho as a result of this. I've seen the occupied 
kind of city hall situation, that encampment they had set up protesting George Floyd, you know, or Derek Chauvin. Um, we were prepared really for the worst. And it's it's a lot to psych yourself up against. I'm sure David to be the one that delivers this breaking news. I don't know where your head was in, you know, especially verdict day. Uh, it was, I, I, we were sitting, I, I've never seen it before. Uh, I was sitting, we were waiting, sitting in the newsroom. And I mean, the silence. And at that particular moment, I'm looking around, uh, at that particular moment, there weren't many African-Americans in the newsroom. I was <laughs> one of that particular moment, you know. <laughs> We all not working. Or <laughs> <laughs> getting ready to. Because <laughs> we got plenty of, we got plenty of black can. people work behind the scenes here, too. So let's just, Amen. Can, yes, we do. And, we and, do. And, 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 and an important part about that, Miles, is that, and, and, and we've had a couple of them say that to us, like, we're visible on air, so people want to, you know, they want to hear our thoughts because they can most connect with us. But the people who are the producers, you know, the writers in the room who don't have that, that it's, 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 it's tremendously difficult on them as well. And reflecting what they're up against in the videos and the sound bites that are chosen and the calculus that has to be made. So we need to remember those people behind the scenes of color as well. But uh, Trace, it was a palpable, I mean, I, I held my breath. People held their breath because if it had been, and here's the point, people had to hold their breath. Some were saying, and, you know, Chelsea Hanley got in real trouble for this saying bypass the justice altogether. But some were saying, how is this even an issue where we might even doubt whether it's guilty after right. seeing that? But right. we, I, I, I didn't think it was automatically guilty. I it was not a slam dunk. This was not a slam dunk because we've certainly, especially in issues of race, we've seen it go the other way. And as African-Americans, there's a weariness there. We don't expect... Right anyone to be held accountable, especially in law enforcement. Now, I just had a big interview that I did with three members of the NYPD. And I talked to them about being black on the job, especially in this climate. And guess what? They also thought Derek Chauvin gave them a bad name. So that's why I said this was one of these incidents where we all saw the same thing and many people felt the same thing. And even they weren't sure which way it was going to go, but they knew it was going to make their jobs a hell of a lot harder, you know, every single day because they're getting it from their own kind and they're getting it from everybody else. Um, but I just, you know, that verdict, I was really thinking about you in particular, David. I said, boy, if we have to break into programming and you have to be the one to say this, uh-oh. Yeah. You're yeah, the face yeah. of it. Yeah. I thought, so, and when you... That's a very good point. I want to hear what you guys say, because I do find uh, since over the year, you say what changed. I do find I'm getting more emotional faster. Usually I would keep emotions in check. But like Pat battled this story this week, and in particular, when I hear young black people speak and, and, and really voice their pain and frustration, uh, I, I find that emotion rises up in me almost on air more than it did. Before. Not that I didn't feel it before, but I just feel... When you talk about a year of change, and, and maybe pandemic is not a lot to do with that, just life and weariness. And I think that's something that, to your point, Miles, you're like, look, if, if you need, I'll tell you if I need to talk. Mm. But I do think that as reporters, all of us, mental health is not something that has been addressed with all the trauma that we've covered, terror attacks, and now COVID, and then this. 
And that and that that would be with some white reporters or non-black reporters as well. And that's that's something else that I wonder as a legacy of this, we might be able to talk more about. Do you guys see yourself being more open and honest about yeah. the emotion? I mean, two things. Um, I think, you know, I think newsroom leadership is important, right? And you having people who look like you in newsroom leadership makes it easier to be able to talk about um your how how it this how this story makes you feel emotionally and why why or not you think you can't cover the story right because in some in some instances you simply cannot cover uh something like uh, a, a a certain incident because it just is too painful to cover and we have to be okay with that there's a conversation being had about burnout across uh the country reporters who are leaving the industry leaving journalism taking breaks from journalism um because they are burned out um, but I think that the moment for me that was most impactful um, was I got a call from our managing editor at some point in June. And he's like, how are you doing? And I'm like, honestly, terrible. Honestly, very terrible. Like, I, there's been the worst two weeks for me in my career. It's been a lot. We had COVID. And then after COVID, we were going directly into these protests. Um, and the hardest part about all of it was... Um, was was the way police responded and how rude and nasty and how physical they were with reporters and specifically with me, which I really did not like. But then second, um, the people in the movement who forgot that the movement was about black lives. And when I say that, I mean, on Juneteenth, we're walking across the Brooklyn Bridge and um, and they're telling us that 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 my crew shouldn't be on the bridge with them. And I said, did you forget that this was a this is Juneteenth, which is about uh, which is about black people and, and, and the end of slavery? Um, can you can you just fix your mind to think about the, the larger meaning of all this and the fact that I have a black face and you don't have a black face and that perhaps that that is that is what we're all talking about here. You're missing the message. Um, and it just was. And, and my security guard was black. My photographer was uh, was Dominican, um, and my, and one of my photographer, uh, two of my, both of my photographers were Dominican that day. It just was, it was, it was such a moment of like, let's take a second and like, and 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 think about this. Think about all that's happening right now. It's Juneteenth. Like, you know, I'm the last person you need to be yelling at for being here covering this movement. Hmm. You know, David, um, if I could, right back. you you talked about what has changed um, in us over the last year and. I think I still find myself asking the question that I asked so many people in the last year since George Floyd. And that question was, is this a tipping point, a turning point? You know, Mm -hmm. is this really going to signal change? I can't tell you how many times I've asked that question to a variety of people, from public officials to young people. And I wish I could answer it myself and say, yeah, because for a while I felt it. And what Miles was saying uh, about the the diversity of of the movement, that gave me, while some people were like, don't try to, you know, take over our movement. I felt that the Mm -hmm. diversity of it was really um, the sign that this could be, you know, a turning point with so many whites and Asians and Dominicans and, uh, you know, Latinx folks and older people, especially the young people who, uh, you know, who joined in this global movement uh, and, and force for change. And so what disappoints me now is that um, there is, I see the support 
for BLM, which I, you know, people needed to be reminded, started with Trayvon Martin, you know, three young women, you know, when, when Trayvon Martin was killed. Um, I see that support dwindling in a tangible or, or visible sense. I mean, not that there should be a protest every week, but I, I was reading a New York Times article last weekend about uh, the, the dwindling support for the movement um, among, particularly among whites who were very visible uh, and in, you know, marching right alongside, you know, the blacks and Latinos and, and Asians during, during the height of the protests. And that's what bothers me. I don't want this to be a, a passing, a moment in history where there's not a new chapter being written, where it's just another page, not a chapter or a whole new book. And that, I think, is what drives me to keep trying to push for the stories that, you know, that we do. And, you know, you mentioned finding black folks. I had never seen so many black folks in commercials in all my life. From Home Depot. Have you noticed that? Yeah. It's like and they stopped playing those. And they stopped playing the urban urban music track under it too. It's like, I right. mean, come on. <laughs> well, there's still a lot right. of so, going on. But I think um, you, it's it's a it's a it's a good point, Pat. And the like I say, we've seen those changes, corporate America, and, and some changes. But is it is it a real inflection point? How much of it will be sustainable? Let me let me let me wind it up this way because we go out for hours. And we know, but let me just wind it up, bring it back to reporters and journalists. All three of you have your professional relationships with law enforcement. You have to. Trace early in the morning, you've got to have your sources, your people, because there's little information. Pat, for years and covering the state of Jersey and, and also even, you know, some family ties in law enforcement. And Miles obviously has worked uh, in various aspects of, of, of city government, but also covering it. So you all have your relationships with law enforcement. Moving forward, um, I would say that I'm going to have the viewers of our market trust me because they've seen me a long time. And I've seen this a long time. So they'll... When we report a story, uh, they'll accept that I'm giving the best representation of it as I can. But that being said, where race was so much a part of it and our emotions are so much a part of this one, moving forward, how do you proceed with these kinds of stories, law enforcement stories? Technically, nothing changes, but what do you see happening differently in either your relationships with your sources, uh, your representation of your stories, anything? I'm, I'm getting it back to journalism for the podcast listeners when they see you moving forward and they might have these questions in their mind. Tracy? Well, we keep using this word reckoning, right? We always say this is a moment of reckoning when it comes to the George Floyd incident. And it's a reckoning that has to happen in that relationship as well, right? There has to be accountability for law enforcement. There has to be greater transparency for on both ends because, you know, not all journalists are great apples either. There's bad apples everywhere. But at the end of the day, we're trying to get the facts that will help tell an accurate story. And we need transparency and accountability from law enforcement to do that. Now, as an African-American woman, am I the first one that they may go to? I don't know. But I have just as much credibility as anyone else. So that has to be seen and acknowledged, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that I've taken uh, a real look at stories I've covered in the past. I mean, I think the most important thing um, in light of George Floyd is um, harm reduction when it comes to being a journalist and how we cover these stories. Um, I'll say that um, if you look at the press release that the Minneapolis Police Department put out about George Floyd's death, uh, you would you would not believe what happened to him 
is the same thing uh, that you saw in that press release. That video and the press release tell two different stories. And so I've made an effort um, ever since June of last year to uh, scrutinize everything more than I already have, number one, to talk to, you know, on some stories we, we you know, we have a, a rule of two sources on a story. Um, if it's a source story, I talk to as many, I call people all morning. I want to hear from seven sure. different people, seven different, uh, seven, uh, the story uh, and make sure it's the same way with every person. And when it's not, um, go back and, and, and figure out where the piece is missing. Uh, and then be very mindful of the stories that I do that that involve the police department. And those stories for me going forward will always be process stories. So if it's a story in which um, it's about the police department, it's about the process, how they're how they're tracking down, uh, you know, a certain type of crime or how they are um, how the how the how the warrant squad goes after, you know, uh, criminals. But it's not going to be anything other than that. Uh, it won't be, uh, you know, repelling out of a helicopter or riding along just to ride along. Those stories uh, do a disservice to our viewers. I think when you are a black reporter, because you um, because you are now a black face of the police department's propaganda and you have to curb that, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, because you have to get back to the basics of this is news and we are, and, and, at, and at this time, we really have to be, um, be even more accountable about the stuff we're putting on TV as it relates to, um, policing. We, we've got a crime issue in the city and, and that is the, the story we have to hone in on it in every way. Pat, I'm going to give you the last word and pick up where Miles left off. And I'm going to give you a lot to sum up here, because on the other hand, we do know there are heroic law enforcement officers, honorable law enforcement officers, and we need law enforcement officers as a society. Uh, what that role is or what it looks like is being debated, right? Uh, but you moving forward, covering race and policing through the lens of a post-George Floyd era, you've always covered the issue. Moving forward and maintaining that relationship with your viewers, what's all that calculus in your mind? Which, again, is an additional calculus that a white reporter probably doesn't have to make being straight up a just Sum it up for us. Tell us how you move forward. David, let me start by saying I think some of our viewers, I know Miles, you and Tracy are very well aware that my mother was a police commissioner, the first African-American and woman uh, to serve in that capacity. Um, some say the state, don't quote me on that, but I definitely know it was anywhere that I'd ever heard of uh, in New Jersey. So, but that was an appointed position. She didn't go through the ranks. She didn't go to the academy. But when she was elected, also first, um, she wanted, they were like, Mrs. Battle, why don't you, you know, why, why, why don't we appoint you mayor? She said, no, I think it can have more impact if I am in charge of the police department. This was 1973, coming out of the riots, following the death of the assassination of Martin Luther King, Kennedy, et cetera, et cetera. And she did just that. And she held cops accountable. Uh, she taught me that one thing, cops are people, you know, they are human beings. They come to the job with the same biases that, and that, 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 and, and the same, uh, thought patterns, the same influences that so many of us bring to our, our own. That's my alarm. Excuse me. Uh, so I think that I, co I go into this, uh, every day I try to look at people and see the good before I look for anything else. And if I approach you from that, uh, from that perspective, that I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt um, 
and tell me, you know, what's happening and tell me the truth. And, and then because I'm pretty good at deciphering truth from 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 fiction. And I think that when I approach people with that that modicum of respect that we all deserve um, when you're in any situation, I find that rather than the, you know, this I, approaching it from an immediate, I don't trust you. I know you're not going to tell me, you know, the truth. I think that we all have a responsibility as human beings to look at each other in the roles that we play in society and to try to make it a better place. And that, that's where when I talk to cops now, I come from a place of, you know where I'm coming from. I'm, I'm, I'm just, you're looking at me. You, there's no denying who this is, right? Mask or not. Mask or not. <laughs> that's notwithstanding. And I think that that I really do feel that among a lot of the law enforcement officers that I've run into since George Floyd, George Floyd, there is, I think there is a growing, when I say growing, it's a seedling. It's There's a growing sense of let me back off and see this person as a human being before I automatically look at them as a black person. And I'm telling you that it, 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 is, not, it, it, it is not something that they are trained to do. They have to, uh, just like us, walk through life and look in the mirror when they get home and see how did I treat those people that I encountered today? That police officer in Virginia, I think I, I, I actually cried when I saw that. I uh, did you too. know, my dad served in the Air Force. My dad was a radar specialist. He was a, you know, he was on his way to medical school until he met my mother and they started having children. Where every summer we would drive down this turnpike where I sit right now and we would go to Mississippi or North Carolina where my parents were born. And once we went south of that Mason-Dixon line, there was not one summer that we did not get pulled over. My dad driving in a suit and tie with his hands on the steering wheel because we couldn't stop. We couldn't stop at a restaurant. Yeah. We couldn't. We were lucky if when we stopped for gas, they'd let us use the bathroom. We couldn't sleep in a mm. hotel. I'm old enough to remember that. And the cop walking up to my dad, radar specialist, Air Force veteran, smarter than I'm sorry. I shouldn't. I shouldn't. Re I shouldn't put it in that context. These Smart are your feelings. Yeah. yeah, these are my yes, feelings. Yes, these are your feelings. Uh, with his yeah. hand on his gun, where you going, boy? And my dad sitting yeah. there, and my, and my mom, my dad sitting there, hands on the steering wheel. You know the position. Assume the position, and going down south to see my family, sir. Where your family at, boy? My family. He tell them where we are, and then he'd look at us. And he said, all these little, and I'm going to not use the word, starts with a P, not the no. word. But this, I remember when I was five years old, all these little, yours? And he's, and my father said, yes, they are, sir. They range in age from five. And to sit there, and it was just a humiliating line of questioning that they endured every single time we went, to, and multiple times. That we wouldn't just get stopped once, always once we got out of D.C. When Virginia, Tennessee, Mississippi, North Carolina, anywhere south, it was... It was humiliating. And even when my mother had her badge, she'd sit in the driver's seat. She'd hand her badge to my dad to show him she was a police commissioner. That ain't yours, gal. Where the hell right. Neptune? That's some kind of planet, you know? Uh, uh, and, right. and my mother, not once did that badge do her any good when we were driving south. We never got a ticket, by the way. He never got a ticket because he was never doing yeah. anything except right. being a black man in a blue station wagon with wood paneled sides and a bunch of children inside. So, but my father's dignity, even under those circumstances, taught me something too. You try to treat people with dignity now, you may burn them in the end, you know, but right. to try to get to where we need to go to get the information, there's an approach to it that for me has changed a little bit since George Floyd, 
Um, but it will always be in, in search of truth. And, and I think I've become a lot more cynical when it comes, you know, yeah. to the answers that I get. And so I do a lot more digging. And All right. That's, that's, uh, and that's a powerful representation, just to remind listeners that um, times when these matters of race, as Black reporters, we've had personal experiences, our families have had personal experiences, and yet we come to the job as any reporter does, and any assignment as any reporter does, trying to set that aside and report the facts as much as we can. But it doesn't mean we're not informed by some of the emotional uh, uh, moments in our lives that we've had experience of George Floyd's death probably at least opened others' eyes and allowed Black reporters to kind of say, yeah, now you get a little bit of where I'm coming from or what I've experienced in a way that perhaps you wouldn't have beforehand. Pat Battle, Tracy Strahan, Miles Miller, thank you for the work that you do. Uh, we're going to let you get back at it because we all got to get out there <laughs> and pay those bills. Now, Amen. we want to we thank uh, Melissa Mack, uh, who's the executive producer who put this together and put a lot of our, most of our coverage together. And we appreciate it. And she's one of the people behind the scenes. And, and, and we appreciate her. We thank the digital team, Darren Price, who she'll work with. Whatever this final product comes out to be, listen, Darren, will have fixed it because we had some pickups along the way. Some of them you may hear, some of them you may not, technically. And Ben Berkowitz leads the digital team. I'm David Oshley. Thank you for being here.